In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Um, so the, okay, so today, okay, so last week, um, so we're starting up again, and the, the, the section that we're dealing with now is called, um, basically, um, is, is, is descriptions of God. And, and, and basically, we're looking at how does God describe himself, okay? And Frame um, basically breaks this down into three fundamental areas. Um, why would he do that? Well, because he is basically this he has hit upon this notion of a perspectival view um, or, a, or a perspectival approach, I think maybe is a better word, for um, looking at revelation. And he, try, he defends this basically uh, by saying that this is how God is actually revealing himself. He is revealing himself through different perspectives, from different perspectives. And uh, so, of course, and so those perspectives are existential, normative, and situational. Okay, those are the philosophical terms that he has eventually applied to this. But in terms of actual scripture, the way he started it out, he started this out by talking about lordship in three forms, or from three perspectives, I'm sorry. Okay? And those are covenant presence, authority, and control. Okay. So that is re- that's all review for us, right? Okay. So now we are talking about a perspectival view of theology proper, okay? And while the mappings are not necessarily real strict, he does choose to map things in this fashion. Uh, For basically God reveals himself through three fundamental ways, which are names, images, and attributes. And he maps them to his three perspectives in this way. Names essentially are existential. Okay? They talk about the person of God. And they, they reveal the person of God. Images are situational. Okay? They are um, images give us pictures, gives us pictures of God and, how, and what he does. And then attributes, which we will be studying in the coming Sundays, basically, or the normative or authoritative. Okay? Attributes are what basically tell us, describe the nature of God. All right? Okay, so today we're going to talk about images. Um, Let's see here. So, I'm sorry. I just ran through this, but names are so for they distinguish him uniquely as a person. Attributes are normative for they provide the most literal and detailed descriptions and are therefore govern our thinking 
but other kinds of descriptions and images where they describe God by analogy to finite historical realities of our experience and thereby show how he enters our experience. Okay, So that is Frame's uh, breakdown of these three means of God's of God describing himself. When I say God describing himself, what am I talking about? I'm talking about God's revelation, okay? Now we're talking about God's revelation, not our notion of God's revelation, not, um, not you know, man's inventions about God. We're talking about what God has said about himself, okay? What is our source for that? Our source is Scripture, right? And we hold that Scripture is fundamentally accurate about God, okay? Why? Why would we hold that? I mean, it's it's a man it's a man made and a man a man made document. Men wrote scripture. Why do we say that that scripture is fundamentally trustworthy about God? And I, I'm just these are rhetorical questions, but I just want to reiterate that you know in, in this day and age where truth. Um, and I'm going to be saying, I'm going to start, let me start it this way because I'm going to reiterate this a lot. In this day and age where we are worshiping at the off altar of personal autonomy, okay, what happens to things like the notion that Scripture is true? That it is reliable and that it is accurate? That, that, okay, that is true. We, we become a society where everybody is doing what is right in their own eyes. Okay? And, 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 and in, in those terms, what happens to civil society? I, I believe we're living it out. Aren't we? Aren't we? Okay, so... So it's a, it's you know as 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 Orthodox Christians, it is paramount that we that that we not allow ourselves in this day and age to to allow our understanding of the revelation of God to be undermined for ourselves. If it is. We have no ground but what is right in our own eyes. Okay? Why do we even do this if God cannot be trusted to have revealed himself accurately and to have preserved that revelation for us so that we may trust it? Why do we do this? Okay. Images as descriptions of God. So, um, Leonardo da Vinci once wrote that a poet would be overcome by sleep and hunger before being able to describe with words 
what a painter is able to depict in an instant. I, da Vinci, of course, was 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 a great painter. I don't know. I, I'm pretty sure most painters didn't do things in an instant. But nevertheless, he uh, that was that was his claim. It sounded like a painter would claim that. The Russian writer Ivan Turgenev wrote in 1861, and please forgive me if I'm, I know I miss I butchered that name. The drawing shows me at once. At one glance, what might be spread over ten pages in a book. The quote, a picture is worth a thousand words, is sometimes attributed to Napoleon Bonaparte, who did say, a good sketch is better than a long speech. Okay. Today, we are going to look, we're going to be talking about Words that paint pictures. If you were going to pick one example of a word that paints a picture, what would that be in terms of God? I'm sorry? Love. Love. Well, okay. Um, say, what's that? Majesty. Majesty. Okay, um, those are adjectives. We're looking for an image. Yes, sir. Shepherd. That's the first thing that came, comes to my mind when I think about, yes? Light. Light is an image. It sure is. And... Uh, and we'll be coming to that image. We'll talk about that image. But one, the first thing that comes to my mind when I think about an image is it comes from the, the most well-known passage of Scripture, right? Psalm 23. Okay? And it paints picture a picture of God that is what? Comforting. Is that the... Right? And so it becomes the thing that we go to in times of loss, in times of distress, in times of, um, yeah, in, in those times of loss or distress. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He restores my soul. Okay? Think about that image. Think about how much that says about God in just a few words. A painted image and what it says about God and His relationship with His people. Nevertheless, images do need to be interpreted. Um, they, um, the case of the shepherd. What, 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 what other things do shepherds do? Why do they raise sheep? 
Well, they raise sheep to, to get the wool, so they shear them. They raise sheep for food and for sacrifice. Okay? Those are not necessarily images that we would carry over to the Lord is my shepherd. Those are not images that Scripture carries over to the Lord is my shepherd. All right? So, images still must be interpreted. Um, But nevertheless, uh, nevertheless, you know, the, the psalmist gave that picture, and then Jesus will take that same image and apply it to himself. He will take that same image and he will apply it in a negative way to the Pharisees. Okay? Shepherds are leaders. Shepherds have a responsibility to take care of the sheep. And in the case of the leaders of the day, Jesus said, you are not taking care of the sheep. You are in this for yourselves. Okay? And you are bad shepherds. I am the good shepherd. Why? Because I lay my life down for the sheep. All right. Um, let, me just, let me just read Jesus and, and what he says. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has not lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Okay, so... There is an interconnectedness between the description types. Um, the names they denote or they identify. All right. So the first the first role of a name is to identify somebody. Who are you? I am Ken White. Okay. Well, <laughs> how does that answer the question? Who are you? And yet that is what we do with names, right? Okay, does, that, does Ken White tell you much about me? Okay, however, unlike my name, okay, God's names, actually, God has chosen names that do connote or describe things about him. Uh, images of God may also be expressed in terms of of attributes, not necessarily neatly, but father, okay, is an image, right? What would be the attribute? Fatherliness, okay? Some primary images are themselves names of God's. Okay, so names, images, and attributes then 
are, uh, okay, so my spell check got me, are perspectively related. That's what that's supposed to be. They tell us the same truths about God in different ways. All right, so how is it, oh, nevertheless, God does forbid images that that are that do that become idols, right? So does the second commandment actually forbid all images? It forbids a certain type of image, an idol. Okay, so what is an idol? This is class participation time, people. And maybe, maybe the problem with class participation here is that I can't hear. That might be the biggest problem. Um, if we take any particular image, what you're saying is if we take any particular image and we say this image tr- is an exhaustive image of what, who God truly is, then we have broken the, the law. So I would say that fundamentally... I, the, the fundamental thing about an idol is what? What is the purpose of an idol? To replace God. To replace God. The, the fundamental purpose of an idol is to provide us something to worship. God is the spirit. God is incorporeal. So God is can't be seen. All right? And, and man has this innate need, sinful man, fallen man, has this innate need to replace the true God with another God and to worship that. So an idol can become almost anything. Any, almost any, I'm sorry, almost anything can become an idol. You know, and, and I think... You know, idolatry is something that the, the unregenerate man struggles with, but idolatry is also something that the regenerate man struggles with. Because there still is that flesh with that underlying need to replace God with something else. All right. Um, okay, so... You know, we've talked about the fact that God is transcendent. Okay? That means God is outside his creation. All right? He is, he is not part of creation. He is outside it. And God is incomprehensible. Right? And we've talked about that. And we acknowledge that in no way can man have exhaustive knowledge of the infinite. And if that is the case, then how is it even possible that images can reveal something true about God. So that question is, is how can we expect any image to be able to communicate any real truth about the nature of God? Okay, well, so we have already seen 
that uh, when we speak of God's transcendence, it does not mean that he is distant or absent. We've already talked about that, right? While God is transcendent and outside of creation, God is not distant from it. He is not absent from it. Yes, sir. Yeah, well, no, no, that's right. So, so, um, right. I mean, I'm not, I'm basically what I'm trying to do when I make that statement, we, we, is a contrast. We cannot have, we know we cannot have exhaustive knowledge. But what leads us to believe that, that we can have any knowledge? That's right. That's where we're going to get to. All right. So God, in, God is incomprehensible. Okay? Which means that, there, again, this goes back to the notion that understanding God in, in any sort of exhaustive way, and by exhaustive I don't necessarily mean that we know all the things and everything about God, but any particular aspect of God, to fully understand and comprehend that single attribute about God. Okay? There are things about the infinite, creator and Lord, that a finite mind cannot comprehend and never will. All right? But that does not mean that he is not knowable. And why is that? And an interesting... And... and, and uh, And an interesting flip that, uh, or an interesting point that Frame makes, and I had never not thought about this, is that in terms of analogical, we, we talk, we look at things, why are, do our analogies work? It's not because there are things, it is, it, I've always thought about it, we, we're taking finite things and, and using, the, God's taking finite things and using those to express things about himself. But the fact of the matter is, is that God as the creator has made his uh, creation theonomically revelatory. He has, as the creator, put aspects about himself in his creation. In the first chapter of Genesis, God made man. How? In his image. Male and female, he made them in his image. So that they're really this, this notion that we have a transcendent and comprehensible God. Yes. There is a problem of knowing him unless he has designed things such that his creature can know him. And that, in fact, is what God has done. Um, 
Okay, so we talked about idolatry a little bit. The radical difference between the creator and the creature does not make comparisons impossible precisely because the creator intentionally put true revelation about himself in his creation. That is a quote from Frame. As there is between, I'm sorry, that is not a quote from Frame. That's a paraphrase of Frame. This is the quote. As there is between God and ourselves no similarity without difference, so there is also no difference without similarity. Even human sin reflects God's nature. For sin in its very essence is coveting God's prerogatives, trying to be like God in a wrong way. We could have spent a whole hour chewing on that one, couldn't we? Okay. All right. So um, so let's let's go ahead and let's just let's take some time and let's talk about some some various um, images that the Bible gives us. Okay. And first of all, we'll talk about king. That God is king is a major theme of Scripture. It appears king, the notion of king, appears over 2,800 times in the Hebrew and Greek. Combine that with kingdom and the corresponding verbs, and kingship is is indeed pervasive. God's kingship is presented in contrast to the corruption and tyranny of earthly kings. Exodus 15, 18, the Lord will reign forever and ever. And Psalm 93, 1 and 2, the Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. Is there any better way to describe the, the, the authority, the power, and the eternality of God than word pictures like this? In Psalm 95, 1-7, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into His presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to Him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In His hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are His also. The sea is His, for He made it. And his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture. The sheep of his hand. Recall early on we talked about uh, the Caesarean Covenant, the notion of the Caesarean Covenant. Do you all remember that? Um, and, and 
basically that it was a model. You know, it's interesting that we can go back to ancient times and look at this model of a covenant between a greater king and a vassal. Okay, and we say that's a model, all right? I would argue, and perhaps I could be wrong, but I would argue that actually that is the model of God's behavior with man. If you're a king and you want to, to, to establish a relationship of authority, where would you go to get a model? Why not go to the model that, is, that God uses? And God's model is one of covenant, okay? Covenant. Covenant basically is something that says, I, as a king will provide these benefits to you. You, as a vassal, will give me this in return. And that is the nature of God's relationship with His people. Is it? Okay. In Revelation... Well, okay, Isaiah 6, 1 through 6. In the year of our Lord that Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting up on a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple, and above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of Him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Another image is warrior, very closely related to that of king. But it does, it does point out that God is not an absent king, that God, is, that God is a king who defends his people. Um, Another image that goes with that is the rider on a white horse in Revelation 19, 11 through 16. Then I saw the heavens open, and behold, a white horse. One sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dripped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepresses of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty." On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Judge, 
Um, he is the one who has authority to establish what the standards will be and to enforce them. He is also a prosecutor. He is the prosecuting attorney who, through his prophets, brings a covenant lawsuit against the people for their covenant violations. He is the defense attorney. Yet in the person of Christ and the Spirit, God is also the defense attorney or advocate for his people. He is legislator. God is the legislator, the one who sets forth the law. Israel is to obey because I am the Lord your God. Okay, so those would be the sort of legal types of things or governmental types of deals. Now we move to family. Okay, so what is the primary image of family? The father, right. So it's interesting that the human race began as a single family with Adam as its head. And as that head, he served as prophet, priest, and king. You know, and basically Paul, taking from that, or making use of that, points out that he was the legal representative of the human race. And as such, when he violated the law of God, all right, he was our representative and he took the human, human race down in the fall in that sin. Okay, so as the family of Israel grew, so, so then as it, obviously the human race ex- began to grow and these roles began to become dif- differentiated. And as the family of Israel grew, Moses had to, had to set up a system of judges to arbitrate between members. And so we see an example of the family being extended to establish civil government. Um, In Isaiah, announcing restoration to Israel, God says, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and will raise my signal to the peoples, and they shall bring your sons in their arms, and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers, and their queens your nursing mothers. And with their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. Okay, Frame points out, however, that fatherhood, however, is not sharply distinguished from his lordship. In Deuteronomy 32, 6, Do you thus repay the Lord... You foolish and senseless people. Is not he your father who created you, who made you and established you? But interestingly, for someone who is estranged from God, who does not have peace with God, he is distant, all right? In fact, we want him to put him as far away as we can. 
But for those who are called to be his children, he is Abba. He is a protector and provider and a guide. The Lord your God, who goes before you, will himself fight for you, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes, and in the wilderness where you were seen, where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. He is compassionate as a father, Psalms 103, 13, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Discipline in Hebrews 12, 17 and 8 through 7 and 8. It is for discipline that you have, have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and are not sons. While the image is somewhat rare, in the, of the image of father is somewhat rare in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, Jesus makes it central and he and he starts by that is how he addresses god my father okay but beyond that and and truthfully guys if you stop to think about this it, what a radical turn this should this would be For Jesus to say, when you pray, pray like this. Paul picks up the theme in Romans 8, 14 through 7. For all who have been led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, Papa. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided that we suffer with Him, in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Ephesians 1, 1-6 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Another is husband. 
Even in the Old Testament, Isaiah 54, 5, For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth, he is called. And even and, and that is, is that not also sort of the image that God gives us in the example of Hosea? As a, he is the husband of a wayward wife. All right? Okay? He is a God of rebellious children. Bridegroom. In Ephesians, basically, 1 through 5, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. He is also Redeemer and Savior. Okay? And I'm going to, I'm going to, I need to move on, I think. Okay. Then we've also talked about shepherd. Um, A couple of other things about shepherd. Consider how prevalent shepherd was to the history of Israel. What was the vocation of Abraham? And his sons, Jacob and Isaac. They were shepherds. Um, we, we already looked at the verse in which God talks about himself being the shepherd who led Israel out of, of Egypt and into the promised land. What was the vocation, uh, what was the vocation of, Dave, of Israel's greatest king? He was a shepherd. Okay? Shepherd connotes the role of leadership, and that leads into government. All right? It also of protection and nurture. Okay, so these are um, basically human analogies, all right, and human roles. Now, there are other images, though. There are animals, okay? So, um, basically, there's the analogy of a hen, all right? And Jesus even talks about in about Jerusalem and how he would he would oh that he could gather them up like a hen gathers her chicks an eagle he carries you he carries his people on the wing on wings like an eagle um, lion Christ is the lion of the tribe of Judah and lamb <coughs> behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Okay, there are also things. When we say things, what's the first thing that comes to your mind in terms of a thing that is used as an image of God? Sorry? Door? I didn't even think of that one. So, first thing I thought of was vine. Okay? Um... There's, but there is also doors, but that one's not up here, but that one's great. Um, there is the bread of life, living water, and light. 
Somebody mentioned that earlier. Okay. So light is um, basically John actually almost identifies God as light. What does he say in John 1, 5? This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. Okay? He and John and John carries that carried that theme in his his gospel. Jesus is I am it's one of the I ams. I am the light of the world. Light is a contrast, a contrast against that which is dark or truth versus error, good versus evil, righteousness versus wickedness. And finally, if, uh, yes, sir. Right. And in fact, when God does appear to, when God appears to people in Scripture, what comes with Him? Bright light. Blinding light. Okay? Um, Genesis' point there is, is that even in the end, the sun and the moon will go away. There will be no need for them. God will be our light. Okay, um, and finally, the big one, Lord. Lord is an image. We have a notion of what a Lord is, okay? Scripture takes the notion of Lord to a much higher level, and we, that's what this whole... Uh, series has truly been on the lordship of God. All right, and rather than go back, I just I will, would, however, read read. I'm just going to read you what Frame says on the subject at this time. The reader will not be surprised to hear that, in my view, the fundamental image of God in Scripture is that of lordship which can be explained as covenant headship. God is the head of covenants made with creation in general, with the human race in Adam and Noah, and with specific families in Abraham, Moses, David, and Christ. In those relationships, he is the supreme controller, the supreme authority, and the the inescapable presence. That one took me up short and something to ponder. The concept of God as Lord provides, as we have seen, not only with an image of God, but also the chief name of God in Scripture, Yahweh. Or curios, and the central source of divine attributes. As we shall see, all the attributes of God describe and confirm His Lordship. So the term Lord combines an image, 
a name, and the attributes all at once. Okay, so last week, uh, Blake promised that I was going to talk about the feminine God, (laughs) which I hadn't planned to do. (laughs) And apparently, I have... um, I have uh, tried to sabotage myself here by waiting until using up the whole time and not having much time for this. But let's take a little bit of time and let's talk about the feminine God. Number, number, so, so, and just to kind of let's set the stage here, let's go no further than Oklahoma. All right? And an article written by a student at Oklahoma Christian College, I believe it is. And I'm going to read you the first opening paragraphs of her paper. In Scripture, God is identified using many names and titles, such as God, Elohim, and Theos, Lord, Adonai, and Kyrios, Yahweh, and descriptions such as Rock, Comforter, and Light of the World. Upon first glance, these words may seem fairly neutral in their gendering of God. However, English frequently assigns masculine pronouns to God. God becomes a he. This use of the masculine pronouns is common in Scripture as well, especially when the context includes a grammatically masculine name, title, or metaphor for God. In many modern churches, only masculine language for the Lord is deemed acceptable. This restriction is historically and more importantly, biblically unfounded. The language we use to define, explain, and identify God shapes the way we understand God. By having an essentially masculine view of God... We blind ourselves to other ways we may connect to God and understand God. This not only distorts our image of God, but a purely masculine view also negatively affects the way we interact with one another, most prominently how the church interacts with women. By broadening our God language to include feminine imagery, we expand the ways in which we can connect to God, this can begin to rectify a distorted view of God and change the damaging ways the church has engaged with women. Okay, so let's real quick go through some thoughts from Frame. Um, Frame basically says, the question is certainly not a major concern of Scripture itself. Um, this is a question about imagery. So, first and foremost, okay, God is spirit. He is incorporeal, and therefore He has no gender. Okay? That has been historically the position of the church. That is how God is understood. While God gives us images about Himself that are anthropomorphic, okay, none of those images involve sexual organs, all right? 
We are therefore looking at traits of character that are associated with women. What are the traits that may be said to be exclusively female? And how might those be applied to God? Most of the... Fem- okay, and so, in, and in the case of Scripture, when feminine imagery is applied to God, how would you expect it to be applied? Well, it turns out, in terms of childbirth. There is, some, there is also wisdom... Wisdom is most often portrayed as a woman, and therefore the wisdom of God is claimed to be a feminine aspect of God. Frame goes on to conclude. My conclusion from these biblical references is that there are a few feminine images of God in Scripture, but they do not suggest any sexual ambivalence in the divine nature. They do not justify, let alone necessitate, the use of mother or feminine pronouns for God, nor do they justify attempts to suppress the overwhelming masculine images and pronouns used in reference to God. So real quick, what what is the problem here? Why is there such a push to, to make God to talk about a female God, a feminine God. So, in the, in the interest of time, here are my thoughts. God's plan is family. God's plan is a complementary, a complementarianism of roles. He made man and woman in His image equal, but he gave them complementary roles, and they, were, they are carried out in the family. But if you're a culture that has decided that the most important thing is personal autonomy for each and every one, regardless of your gender, regardless of your chosen sexual orientation, where is the place for complementarianism? There is none. And so, if you're looking for equality and an egalitarian world, and you're coming from a viewpoint that my personal autonomy is first and foremost, then as a woman, what do you need? You need a feminine God. And so what are you going to do? Well, you have already, we have already basically said the Bible is not the rule and guide for how we are to understand God. We have already rejected that. And because we are autonomous, we are free to to define Him how we see fit. And that is what we are doing. And what are we erecting for ourselves in the Western world?
That's my thoughts on the feminine God. We're done. Thanks.